I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is widely known as the Indiana Jones of positive psychology because his research has taken him to lots of places around the world, places that you wouldn't expect to find a lot of happiness. He went to Greenland, to India, to Kenya, to Israel. He worked with the Amish and many, many other cultures. He's a leading authority on the topic of strength, culture, courage, and happiness and is known for his pioneering work in the application of positive psychology to coaching. Dr. Robert Biswas-Diener has authored more than 60 peer-reviewed academic articles. He has written more than seven books, including The Courage Caution, the award-winning 2007 book called Happiness, and the New York Times bestseller, The Upside, of your dark side. I think this is a conversation that you will enjoy because while I love Robert's work, we don't always agree, especially on that dark side bit. Let's see how this goes. Hey, Robert, how are you? Thank you so much for joining me. I'm doing pretty well. It's been a tough year, but- Hasn't uh, it? Yeah, I mean, incredible. I mean, I think it's easy to say it's dividing people, but we're all going through the same thing. So right. in some ways it's bringing us together, but I personally have had a really tough year. I don't How's your year been? Uh, I had, um, tough is indisputable. Huh? Every one of us in every aspect of our life, I'll say openly, I mean, there is so much challenge to deal with every day, but at the same time, I have to say, It's been a blessing in many ways. It was quite interesting when you really think about it because I started my year with one New Year's intention, which was silence and space. And look at what the world has done for me. It's like, you want silence and space? I'll give you (laughs) silence. (laughs) Yeah. So so I've I've had a tremendous amount of reflection time. I started this podcast just because of the space that I was finally given when I stopped traveling. And as a result, uh, you know, it's now in the top 10% worldwide. It's growing very, very steadily. It's delivering exactly my message, exactly my message, which is... Yeah, well, congratulations to you because I, I looked at who you've had on and it's an incredible list of people. I mean, it's really extraordinary. It really is. And even when you think about you today, you will actually notice... We did not have anyone that speaks about the stuff that you speak about. So we're we're sort of surrounding a topic that is very important for everyone at this time from so many angles. And it's so inspiring. And I'll tell you openly, I sort of like go through my day waiting for this one hour that I'll spend with my guest. It's just so amazing. But you're supposed to be like the most qualified on earth to deal with this situation. I mean, every one of your books, you know, the the courage quotient, all of the work on positive thinking, the ability to embrace the dark side, like this is your time. You know, it's like, okay, (laughs) here I am. (laughs) It's true. It's true. And it's interesting. I mean, one of the things is kind of just being okay with things not being okay. In part, like I understand wanting to see the silver lining or wanting to see lessons or improve out of this. And I think that's legitimate. And I also think it's legitimate to struggle a little with this and to have a a hard time. I'm not a believer that everyone has to be happy about every event. Like my cat was my best friend and he got hit by a car. You know, he was in the prime of his life. That was traumatic for me. How old? He was eight, you know, and he was healthy and beautiful and wonderful. And it was just an accident. And I spent two weeks, I cried every single day. And I think that's appropriate. And I didn't try to avoid that. And I didn't try to like reassure myself and say, well, oh, it's okay, Robert, because he died quickly, or it's okay because he had a good life, or it's okay. 
I just thought, no, it's sad. Yeah, I'm going to and be sad about this and now. That's okay, you know, and, and I might have to struggle for two weeks where I'm distracted and crying. And then eventually I'll work through that process and I'll get back to the business of happiness. And, mm. and I think that that's quite okay. I love that. So I'll have to say I've been waiting for our conversation because I'm, I don't know how to say that. They normally refer to me as the happiness engineer, if you want, because I'm quite logical about the approach. But the other hidden side of me is I'm quite shrewd as a businessman. So when I set a target, I make it happen. So if, if the target is we're trying to be happy here, it's like, so don't mess with me. Let's just do this happiness thing, right? And your view is so refreshing, especially the power of your dark side and how it's okay to feel negative. It's okay to embrace this. It's actually not okay not to. And that's not about the big events only, like losing your cat or losing a loved one, but it's also about the small events of it's just difficult and I'm okay to feel that I'm overwhelmed or feel sad, right? Yeah, exactly. But then how does that lead us to happiness? Well, I think it's part of the, the process. I think you don't spend any extra mental energy trying to fight against your natural emotional reactions. You know, if you feel a moment of guilt or a moment of irritation or boredom, that's part of your normal psychological architecture. Like traffic is irritating. If you hurt someone's feeling, you do feel a little guilty. Like that's functional. And I think that's important. I think where people get into problems is when they exaggerate it or when they, they make more out of it. So yeah. instead of just feeling like, oh, I feel a little guilty that I hurt your feelings, then I feel really guilty and I won't let myself off the hook and I start criticizing myself. And that's the problem. It's not the guilt itself that's the problem. It's the, the length, the duration, the intensity of the guilt. And so somehow negotiating that, accepting that guilt is normal and functional, but not overdoing it. Yeah. So like you're saying, I'll cry about my cat for as long as I feel I need to cry about my cat, but then I'll get up and then just go back to my life and, you know, do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that seems functional to me. I'm always a little skeptical of people that are, you know, if someone said like, oh, I was diagnosed with cancer today and I'm trying to see what's good about that. I would say, well, that, that sounds a little rushed to me. I mean, some good things might come out of it. You might ultimately, it might make you realize that time is precious or invest in your relationships. Definitely something good could come out, but probably not while you're in the doctor's office hearing the diagnosis for the first time. That would be delusional. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's sort of a process you need to work through. And I don't really know how long that process needs to be. It probably differs from person to person and circumstance to circumstance. You know what I love about your approach, which really is quite eye-opening for me, is that you, so you travel a lot. You see the reality of hardship, but then you look at the Western approach to life and we sort of mess up twice with our kids. One is we protect them too much, so they don't really know what real harshness is. But then when there is something a little bit hard, we tell them, hey, swallow this, don't show it, you know, tuck it in. It's not allowed to be expressed. Is that something that is fixable at all? I mean, first of all, is that true? If you, I mean, did I get you correctly when I read that? Yeah, for sure. So if you don't mind talking about it, I'd like to talk about yeah. both sides of that. That was the main lesson when I wrote the book, The Upside of Your Dark Side, where we kind of look at accepting. Yeah. To me, people always say, oh, how did writing that book change you? And that is the thing. It had to do with my parenting. And I just started realizing how quick I was to reassure my kids. Like, oh, it'll be okay. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> oh, it's all right. And we say that in times that they should be worried or in times that it's actually not all right. So I can remember my son being frustrated because we couldn't do something. He didn't do his homework. And he walked around kind of moping and frustrated. And I felt the pull to say to him, oh, it's okay because we'll do this on the weekend or don't worry because we'll do something else. And I thought, no, he's actually being 100% correct. He's moping and frustrated because he just experienced something frustrating. And so what I said instead was, you're feeling exactly what you should be feeling. And I felt like in doing that, and it was really hard for me to do that as a parent, 
I was kind of equipping him with emotional intelligence. I was helping him to label his experience, to tolerate his experience, kind of toughening him up and not trying to invalidate his experience. And I also realized that a lot of that reassurance is because our kids' negative emotions are inconvenient for us. Correct. You know, and so he's frustrated moping around the house and that's putting like a dark cloud that I don't want to deal with. I want a happy, good mood in the house. And it really changed the way, I don't want him to mope for five days because he had a small frustration, but, but I just said to him, you know, hey, you seem frustrated and that seems appropriate to me. And I think he said, I hate having a psychologist as a father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the time when you tell him, oh, no, no, I'm not a psychologist, I'm a happiness researcher, yeah. right? No, no. Yeah, <laughs> I'm exactly. not going to use that title now. But do you also feel we're a little overprotective? I mean, I come from Egypt. And to be quite honest, I'll tell you, I went through a lot of crap as a young child from being bullied on the streets to, you know, injuring every little inch of my body to, you know, eating like, I don't think what I was eating was food, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> at least not, not all of it, right? And, and yeah, and, and we become quite resilient to those things. But all of our attempt to protect our kids, is that good for them at all? Well, it's well-intentioned. I, I would never take a parent who's trying to protect their kid and say, you're a bad parent. Because of course they love yeah, their kids. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's such a natural thing to want to protect them. When you protect your kids, you buy them a little bit of safety and you cost them a little bit of opportunity. So it's a give and take. And I think about it like climbing a tree. One parent says, don't climb that tree. You're going to tear your clothes. You're going to you know, maybe break your arm. And another parent says, go ahead and climb the tree. You'll feel more confident. You'll be able to see the world from a different perspective. Both of those are good parents. There's not one set that are right and wrong, but the kids who never get to climb trees don't always get that perspective or confidence or that kind of internal toolbox, but they do get a lot more safety. And it's a trade-off. I mean, I don't know if they do get a lot more safety. I mean, one of the examples that we normally talk about is, I don't know if that's true, by the way, but my hometown, Egypt, has very, very low cases of COVID-19. This could be because we don't report that accurately. We, we don't really care. But it could also be because we eat viruses for dinner. It's like, this is uh, normal for us. And it's actually sometimes quite interesting when you think about a little bit of bacteria in your food is not that bad for you. It's, you know, that overprotection can actually really, really work negatively against your immune system because it doesn't train you with a tiny bit of disruption, right? So too much safety doesn't work as well. And I think emotional safety is a perfect example of this. I think every time you experience a, a so-called negative emotion, it's like going to the, the gym and getting a workout. Yeah. Like, yeah. okay, so I, I got on the machine called irritation or the machine called boredom, and I did my reps with that. And then the next time I experience boredom, I can just handle it better. It's never going to feel great to me, but it's just not going to be a big deal to me so much and I can move through it. And the people who don't have experience with that, they come home from work, they open a bottle of wine because it's the only way they know how to relax. They can't handle worry or stress. They're just out of practice with it. So those habits grow with us. So we end up, it's not just a children's problem. We're surrounded by children who are now adults who have not been trained to handle that harshness. And in an interesting way, we just are sort of like almost allergic to discomfort. It's like we don't want any discomfort in our life at all. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to, to put it. And in fact, you know, if you do a Google image search of the words comfort and discomfort, it's really interesting. If you do comfort, all the images are external. It's flying in a private jet, a huge bed, a bubble bath. But if you look at images for discomfort, it's people holding their head or their stomach. It's always internal. So interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so it's just like this idea that, that discomfort is internal, but the remedy, comfort, is external. But I think the remedy is actually internal. And in part, it's tolerating it. And then once you've tolerated it for a short amount of time, it's switching internally to all the things we know that make us happy. And so... 
the idea of finding comfort is not in a softer bed. It's in adjusting to the bed that you have, sort of. Well, both are true. I, I don't want to tell anyone that they shouldn't get a better bed if their back is hurting or something. But both are workable solutions. I want a good enough bed, but I also want a good enough attitude. Yeah, so this is where I struggle a little bit, again, because you and I travel the world. You spent a long time researching happiness in Calcutta, for example. A bed, like the beds, you know, the mattress discounters that we get in North America, this is unheard of in most parts of the world. Most parts of the world, people will sleep on a mat, and there will be seven people in a room, and it doesn't actually make them unhappy, does it? No, not at all. You know, one of the most formative experiences I had as a young person, when I was 19, I lived in a really remote village in India. And there were so many bugs in my little place where I slept and bugs on my bed. And it had a thatched roof. One night, a rat fell out of the roof and landed on me, you know, like, you know, and, and I don't want that to happen. I would never say, oh, please put a rat on me. And I was afraid when it happened. But The truth is, I just kind of was able to adapt, like you just sweep the bugs off or you get rid of them or you you don't complain so much about that stuff because that's just a fact of life. And I think now I'm almost 50 years old. Are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're doing well for 50, man. That's (laughs) impressive. Well done with all that hair at 50. Come on. Like, and it's not even white. Like, what's going on? I've got a little white here. It's okay. Oh, yeah. Don't, let's not talk about that. That's, <laughs> we should probably edit that part out. <laughs> but I think I would have a harder time, to be honest, if you put me back in that same village. I would adapt over time, but I'm so much more used to comfort now that my, my process of adaptation might take a little bit longer. Or it might just take more energy from me to do the adaptation. And back then, you know, when I was traveling all the time, it was just, it was easy. You have so many incredibly entertaining stories about your travel. So I want to go through all of them, but I hate to ask you to repeat them because I've heard them in some of your talks. I loved the story when you had to go hunt for yourself in Greenland. I loved your story of racing against the little girl in India. Can you tell us about hunting in Greenland? Because I think it's very relevant to the rat falling on your chest. Yeah. So I spent about six weeks in northern Greenland and Kanak and Siarpaluk, which are the two northernmost towns in Greenland. Why do you choose those places? Are you trying to prove that there are people in the world that have no chance in happiness at all? It's like, you know, this is as tough as it gets. Uh, well, I've always liked getting outside the research laboratory. I want to go out and meet people where they are in context. And I've always been, anthropologists do this all the time, psychologists less so, but I've just been interested in people and I want to see people who live a radically different way of life. And and in Kanak, these people still do subsistence hunting. They still use dog sleds and kayaks, not motorboats, not snowmobiles. So they, they really have a traditional way of life although it's changing. You know, I saw these parents who were like chopping up an animal on their kitchen floor, blood everywhere, and their kids right next to them were watching Moulin Rouge, the movie, on DVD. Well, you know, and it was like just such a juxtaposition of worlds. But while I was there for six weeks, we had to do our own fishing and hunting sometimes. There's also a a sort of a local grocery store. You could buy, you know, some rice and some basic things that were shipped in. But if we went out into the field, we would have to hunt for our own food. And and one time we hunted for ox, which are kind of a bird, A-U-K, and you grab them out of the air with a net that's on a long pole. And, you know, birds are good at flying. It's pretty hard to grab them out of the air. (laughs) Exactly. And me and my research colleague, I think it took us about two hours. In one hour, I was able to catch one bird. And in one hour, he was able to catch one bird. Wow. And it's the only time I've hunted for my own food. I mean, typically, I'm like going to the grocery store and saying, oh, is this organic? Is this local? Is this, you know, doing all that kind of, you know, like, you know, sitting pretty high on the the mountain of food choices. And I just felt like, wow, like we got these birds and we're going to go cook them and eat them. 
And we got into the village and the kids were making so much fun of us, right? Because we just had two birds. And I asked the local hunter, you know, like, because I was feeling so proud. <laughs> Superman. What would be a good amount of birds? And he was like, no, I can't even tell you. Like, I don't want to make you feel bad. And I said to him, what was your best day ever? And he said, 770 birds. Ah, come on. <laughs> I mean, your question was framed wrong. You were really hunting for it. It's like, tell me how horrible I am as compared to you, oh master, right? So, yeah. <laughs> and you had one. One each, yeah. And that, that also is kind of an interesting thing about adaptation that I actually think it's really interesting. So that night we put them in a bowl of water, a boiling water, and you just peel their, their feathers off all in one. And we ate everything, like the heart, oh. the intestines, the kidneys, the like just the whole bird, like because that was my whole dinner. And it tasted terrible. You know, I'm not gonna oh. act like it, it was good, but it also I just felt like I had to do it. And it taught me something about motivation too, which is you just have to adapt. There's almost no choice unless you want to go hungry, and you can only do that for so long. And you know, you do three, four days of that, and suddenly you're gonna be eating intestines and, and other things. Yeah, that's a horrible example. But I think the, the beauty <laughs> of it is every time you eat a fried chicken afterwards, uh, you know, that has been prepared for you, you go like, that's actually nice. You know, the, you start to appreciate those things, right? Which, which we've lost. It's a great point, Mo. If you take the time to appreciate it, because it's easy for me, like this morning when I ate breakfast, I didn't think about those birds in Greenland. I just thought about my, my breakfast, which was asparagus. It was pretty easy, just cooked it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I do sometimes think about things like one of my favorite appliances is a toaster because I think, <laughs> okay. I think the toaster gets so overlooked by everyone. People really appreciate refrigeration or maybe their dishwasher or their television, their computer, and no one appreciates a toaster. But a toaster is really functional. It's really simple. It's, it's probably got the best design of all your appliances. You're never yeah. like swapping out the remote control or you can't figure out how to program it. You just push a lever down and you get instant toast. <laughs> Which is important. <laughs> if we were like 300 years ago, people would think that was the most miraculous thing they had ever seen. And so I try and think about that sometimes because then, then I start thinking like I'm delighted by my toaster on a weekly basis. You do realize that actually historically, it wasn't the electric light that spread electricity to every home. It was the invention of the toaster where everyone said, I need one of those. Like I, you know, I can live in the dark, but toast, I can't do without this. You know, this <laughs> <Yeah. is amazing. laughs> but it is true. I mean, you really have to think about it. Not much to realize that we live the life of the Queen of England like 60 years ago or 80 years ago was living a more horrible life than what you and I are going through today. I mean, the poorest person in America still maybe, I mean, not the poorest, but a reasonable lower income on the middle class, let's say, has a car and has air conditioning and has, you know, so many of the luxuries and then Netflix and a mobile phone and, right? Yeah, absolute technological miracles. Yeah, and we take that for granted somehow and complain about little things when in reality... Yeah, I think toughen up is an interesting way of looking at it. How would you tell people to toughen up now? Is this kind of harshness we're going through something that can be, you know, thought about in that logic that, you know, life is still okay? I mean, in, my short answer would be yes, but I would want to thread the needle there because, you know, you don't want to sound insensitive like, oh, I'm so glad you got coronavirus or that your sister died. Of course not. Yeah. Something yeah. that sounds insensitive. Because I think, it, I think that people are going through a tough time. I think so many people have lost their jobs. So many people are worried about getting sick. And I think that's a legitimate fear. So many people have gotten sick, lost their loved ones. Here in my part of the world, there's wildfires. You know, we evacuated our home from wildfires. I mean, life is throwing us a lot of challenges. And I think when the challenges are acute, like the wildfires, you just rise to the occasion. Because you can't just sit back and say, oh, I think I'll just stay here while the world burns. You have to leave. But I also think, I had a friend who said, there's only two types of people in the world. People who go through everything we're going through and don't think anything about it. And then there's people who go through everything we're going through and it causes them really to reflect. 
reflect on what's important. How is society built? What should society look like? What should my relationships or my work look like? And I think that's an important part of the resilience and the happiness is taking these hardships, accepting that they exist, and using them in a way to just reflect and say, maybe I should spend a little more time with my loved ones. Maybe I have been neglecting them, or maybe I should take up a hobby. I took up drawing, for example, and it really has seen me through this. I draw a couple hours a day, and I absolutely do you? love it. Yeah. Do you do it well? Yeah, well enough. Oh, seriously? Well, I'll put a link to your work. I'll send you a couple. Okay, okay. I draw very well. I might... Uh crush your spirit. Oh, cool. I would love to see yours. <laughs> no, I'm not dead. I'm, I actually love it. I actually have been telling myself I miss it so much. And I haven't put in the time, again, because of all the travel. Yeah. I draw charcoal and graphite and pencil and so on. So you need a sharpener, you know, like a little knife to take with you everywhere. And they don't like those on the flights. So, you know, I have to put it in my bag and then put a, like, you know, it's just complicated. <laughs> or maybe I'm making up excuses, but maybe now I should. You are, you are, by the way. Oh, am I? Am I? Am yeah. I? Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, here is one more part we're going to have to edit. No. <laughs> <laughs> Can we go on that trip a little bit? So you went from Greenland. You also went to Israel, to Kenya, to India. Uh, you worked with the Amish. Yeah. How is happiness in those different places? Is there any nuggets of wisdom that you found? Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, people in general are mildly happy. Like happiness is sort of our birthright. And I don't mean perfect happiness, everyone walking around with a smile on their face all the time. I'm not talking about American happiness. <laughs> okay. I, just, I just mean that, you know, like it doesn't matter if you go to Egypt or South Korea or Brazil People have good friends. They like some barbecue on the weekend. They would prefer work that's stable and meaningful. Like we have a lot of similarities is the truth. Yeah, I agree. And a lot of that's fairly easy to achieve, but you do also find differences. So the Amish, for example, right? This is a religious group of people who actively push away modern technology. If you look at all of their satisfaction with their physical quality of life, if you say, how satisfied are you with your income or your house or your food? They're like perfect because they view it as a bounty from God. And because they're so into God that they think any house I have, I'm so grateful for. But then you ask them, how satisfied are you with your physical appearance, your intelligence, your morality? And they're kind of like, eh, just so-so. Mm. And it's because they don't want to seem bragging or proud, you know, oh. and they're, they're kind of like, I have loads of room to improve. And they kind of actively put themselves down a little bit so that they can always be improving. And yet they love the physical bounty they have. That's the opposite of what the Maasai have in Kenya, for example. Yeah. The Maasai are pretty proud people. It doesn't matter what they look like, if they're missing all their teeth. You say, how physically attractive are you? And they're like, eh, I'm pretty good looking. <laughs> I'm the man. Yeah. <laughs> <Look at me. laughs> you say, you know, how smart are you? How all of these things? And they're like, pretty good. But their physical quality of life isn't that great. One of the things I thought was pretty interesting around the Messiah in particular is I kind of looked at their complaints and I asked them, can you name as many bad things as happened yesterday as possible? Now, how about last year? Or how many good things? And so in general, people can name more good things than bad things. But if you look at the Maasai, like they couldn't think of bad things that happened yesterday, but they could think of bad things that happened last year. And it's because really big things happened last year. Like there was a drought, a child died. I mean, the big stuff stands out, but the little stuff like from yesterday, yeah, they're not even cataloging it, but you know, Americans, Canadians, Westerners, we're like, oh, I had a customer service interaction. I got stuck in traffic. Like every little thing adds up. But if you look at what the Maasai complained about yesterday, a leopard came into the village and ate my goats. <laughs> I mean, it's like oh, big, that's big stuff. Yeah. 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 It, it wasn't like I couldn't find my bracelet. 
I looked everywhere for it. I mean, it, you know, it just wasn't that. <laughs> yeah, you need something a little more serious to shake them a little. I think that's the true secret of happiness, if you ask me. I mean, when people ask me about COVID-19, I say, look, if you haven't been sick, if you haven't lost a loved one, if you haven't lost your job and are seriously suffering economically, then the only way you can look at it is you're fortunate, actually not unfortunate. You simply say, look, a lot of people around the world are suffering and I'm okay. Or as you rightly say, you compared to last week when a tiger came into the village and bit a child, yesterday was fantastic. We didn't have a tiger. That's great. That's a good place to be. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. So this leads me to a very, very interesting part of your work, which I don't know from which book this came because I saw it in a talk where you said your happiness is in your past, but not your future. Yeah. And that's really wonderful when you think about it. Tell me a bit about this. I mean, there is happiness in the future too, but what do you mean by it's more in the past? Yeah. So people, especially people in Western industrialized cultures, we feel like we can really control our lives. We have a lot of agency, right? I can make decisions about where to live, what kind of car to drive. I could switch jobs if I wanted. We have a lot of control. It's not just karma landed me here or the gods landed me here or something like that. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time thinking about the future, right? What am I going to do tomorrow? We spend a lot of time planning, a lot of time trying to create good careers, a lot of time thinking about like, well, I've got a vacation in the offing and then I'll be relaxed and all of this. But all that's pretty hypothetical, right? You're like prospecting. Maybe I, I think a trip to Hawaii will probably be pretty relaxing. I think that's a safe bet, but it's still a bet. But if you look backwards, it's a guarantee. You can ah. look exactly, exactly to the points that you enjoyed really wonderful things in the past. So think about a wonderful intimate moment with someone or a fun time with your friends or a beautiful walk in nature, whatever it is for you. And if you actually put yourself there and envision it or talk about it, you will resurrect the same fulfilling sense of happiness that you had back then. You can drag it from the past into the present and feel it right now. And to me, it's a guarantee. Now, I'm not suggesting that people only focus on the past, but from time to time, it's really great to like draw emotional water from that well and drink it. Oh, wow. This is so profound. This is really, really clever. I mean, when I teach, I tell people about the idea of how we dwell on little things. Your partner will say something annoying on Friday and then you'll dwell on it on Sunday. And then by Monday, you'll say she's, she doesn't love me anymore. And by Tuesday, you're going to say, I'm going to have to go dating again because she's going to dump me. I hate dating. I'm going to spend yeah. the rest of my life alone, right? And we, we have that clever way of regenerating stories from the past that hurt us. But what you're saying is I can actually have a practice where I simply sit down and regenerate wonderful memories that make me really happy and that will simply be a happiness on demand instead of unhappiness on demand, right? So instead of bringing up the bad parts, you can bring up the good parts of life and you'll always smile. You'll always remember that wonderful moment, feel blessed, and just enjoy it as it is. That's right. So I'll give you an example of this. Both of my kids are in their 20s, but when my son was a baby, one afternoon I put him to sleep and I was holding him, right? And I, at that moment, said, I'm going to memorize every single thing about this moment, the way his little butt sticks over my arm, the crinkling sound of his diaper, the way his head smells, the weight of him on my oh, shoulder, I love that. the way his cheek pressed like his mouth into a funny little shape. And I completely memorized it. And about once a year, I go to that memory. And it's such a crystal clear memory, like visually, it appeals to all my senses. And I can actually, even now, to be honest, as I am talking about it, I feel such like a complete sense of like, I, feel, I literally feel warmth spreading throughout my body right now as I'm thinking about this memory. Now, I don't want to overdo it because I don't want to maybe drink the well dry necessarily. Mm -hmm. So that it, it loses its effect sort of. Yeah, but if I do that once a year or something, now imagine I have 100 memories like that. That's wonderful. That's pretty cool. That's wonderful. And, and who doesn't? I mean, everyone, if you really look deeply, you'll have thousands of, of pleasant memories. I used to do something amazing with my kids. I have no idea where I got that 
concept from, but I used to create what I call synthetic memories. So we had those, you know, regular, we go out together on a Thursday night. Thursday night in Dubai is the night of the weekend. We go out together on a Saturday morning and so on and so forth. And I found that when you add music and a scent, a smell, and certain words and maybe a joke, these are all our senses. And if you are in a moment where something is happening and you just add a little bit of each of those to it, the memory becomes really, really vivid. And so even today, my daughter every now and then will come to me and will smell a certain fruit and say, remember the time when we were shopping for that fruit and then this happened and you said this and you tickled me, and right? And it's, the memory has a lot of texture to it, if you want. And it becomes delicious. It becomes almost alive again. And I, I think I have like a million, not a million, but a few thousand of those, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love that, Mo. It's so amazing. And I like also in your story that, that it's social, so then it's shared. Yes. And, and yeah. I think people do when we tell war stories or talk about that embarrassing moment or share a memory, we are kind of together bringing forth that past happiness, which I think is wonderful. Maybe I should stop creating more happy moments now. I can just settle for the what I have in the bank, no? <laughs> it's like we have so much of them. I really am intrigued, though, by your approach to asking about satisfaction with life. And I am specifically interested in surveys you did in India, where the quality of life is horrible. And then you did the same surveys with homeless people in San Francisco, if I remember correct. In Fresno, California, yeah. Yeah. So what is common? I mean, obviously life can be very harsh, but it doesn't seem to dent the happiness of people who are going through that harshness. And why is that? Yeah. So, so the people in, it was in the, the slum areas in Kolkata. So very, very impoverished area. The take-home message, I say they have good social relationships. The very first time I went into a, a slum area, you know, you, I had to step across an open sewer to get into it. There was like just, it was so crowded and it was dirty. And like, you could just see like toothbrushes laying out and pigs near them. And it just like, it was just so crowded and dirty. And these little kids came running up to me, you know, as novelty, this white guy in, in their neighborhood. And they had this little trophy. And I was like, I was kind of surprised by that. And I said, you know, to my translator, what's this trophy? And he said, oh, well, they played in a soccer tournament against some other neighborhoods and they won. Wow. And I thought, wait, that, like, this is totally making it's me so cool. think all of this, you know, and they had a little shrine and it was puja season. So they, you know, had this little religious festival and I'm like, they're just poor but they still have the fabric of their society. They still have relationships, organized sports, religious traditions. That didn't go away. They just don't have stuff. And that lack of stuff hurts them. They're not like, yay, I love this. But their relationships help buffer them from the problems with health or income insecurity or food insecurity. One, another story, I, I asked a woman, my favorite interview question by far, is what did you do yesterday? Okay. People don't prepare for it. And I think it gives you such a great snapshot of their life, you know, and people might say, oh, well, that's not a typical day, but I'm like, yes, yeah, it really tells me about you. So I asked a woman, again, this is in the slums of Calcutta, what did you do yesterday? She said, I went to the movies. And again, I was like, I never would have expected that answer. She said, my husband is a rickshaw puller he makes very small amount of money and he hides some money in the wall of our little shanty. And he doesn't know that I know where it is. So I steal a little bit and he doesn't <laughs> keep track of it. So every once in a while, about once a month, I can steal some coins out and he'll never know. And me and my friend went to go see the movies. And I said, that's great. What did you see? She said, I have no idea. We went for the air conditioning. Oh. And I thought, here's a woman that, took her friend for a few hours of air conditioning and they just sat in back and gossiped and hung out, enjoyed the cool weather. They would prefer to live like you and I with access to air conditioning and, and money and refrigeration and modern conveniences. But we also can't think that they're doing terribly because here she is feeling like she has some control over her life. She's got connections with a good friend and if you compare that to the folks I interviewed in California, 
they don't have that. They're definitely like society's throwaways. They don't trust one another. They don't trust the police. They don't usually have relationships with their family members. You know, they're estranged and they're, they're far more socially isolated. It's just such a strong reminder when you say those things. You know, in the Islamic world where I come from, I still actually fast the month of Ramadan every year of my life. And it's an incredible experience if you do it properly. The Islamic world has turned it into a very social event where we just get together for the breaking of the fast, which is dinner time, really. And, you know, you eat lavish desserts and meals and so on. But if you actually do it properly, like it's supposed to be done, which is to really live a simulated life of poverty for 30 days, for a month, it just blows you away. Like I vividly, every month I do that. At the beginning, you're sort of like missing your coffee. In the middle, you're feeling super healthy. Like fasting is just so good for you. But then by day 27, your body is completely worn down. And you start to really, really, really feel what the people who don't have anything to eat feel like. But then something amazing happens. When you get that, it gets you into that moment where you're completely grateful for every freaking sip of water you get. Suddenly, it's, you don't take anything for granted anymore. It's like when it's 7 p.m. or whatever, you know, sunset time, and you have that tiny little, normally we break our fast with a date, one date, and you go like, I can live on that for like six weeks. Like, I'm so grateful. <laughs> this is the best thing I've ever had in my life. It's one date, right? And it just, it just changes perspective. It really, really is something we should do more often. Those trips, I mean, that you share, the stories that you share, this is what's eye-opening, I think. The world can find happiness in circumstances that are not even comparable to our typical day. But what did you do yesterday, by the way? I drew in the morning. So every day I draw for about two hours to start the day. You're really, really like pumping the expectations of my listeners here. They're expecting a Picasso now. It's like, okay, we're going to have to see that stuff. All right. You drew for a couple of hours. Yeah. <laughs> but they should know I only took up drawing two years ago. Now you're making excuses. Okay. <laughs> I've been drawing for two years and I only draw architecture. So I draw buildings. I took it up because I was in Italy and I thought the, the buildings were so beautiful. Okay. And so I started drawing. I'll provide you the first picture I drew, and then I'll provide you some later pictures so that you can Good see idea. the impression. Good yeah. idea. Yes, yes. And we will have it, we'll have it associated as a PDF with the download of this, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of this podcast. So you drew for a couple of hours? Yeah. I went on a walk with my wife, Wonderful. which we do every single day. I really try and prioritize that stuff. And then I actually taught a, a three-hour course because it was the workday in Australia. So it was Australian. So even though it was ah. Sunday for me, it was the weekday for them. So I did a little bit of work. But that is actually a pretty typical day for me. I try and do a little bit of stuff with my wife, a little bit of self-growth stuff, a little bit of work, not too much of any of the stuff, kind of spread it out a little. Happiest moment or was it evenly happy? What was the happiest moment? Mm -hmm. My wife texted me. She went to go visit her mother and she texted me and she said, I'm going to blow your mind when I come home. And she was really just teasing me. She said, I've got some news that's going to be so shocking. And she wouldn't tell me what it was. <laughs> I love that. I had to wait for a couple hours until she got home. And I just loved that. I loved receiving the text and not knowing what the news was going to be and having to wait. And I found myself trying to guess what the news was going to be. I love that. And it was just so delicious. And I'll tell you what, the news was not mind-blowing. Was, it was like about a TV show. Like, oh, did you know that this actor <laughs> is in this TV show? I mean, it was like not a big deal. I promise you, I promise you, it is always the anticipation of some of those things is the joy of the journey. I had a friend of mine when, I, when we were teenagers that wrote this wonderful poem to his aspired girlfriend. I remember that little bit that basically said the most exciting moment is just a few seconds right before the kiss. You know, the kiss itself, yeah, it's amazing, but it's just those two seconds that are even more amazing than the kiss. And I think we just waste those things. We don't take those experiences because we're rushing for the result all the time. It's like, come on, tell me what it is. Like, spill the beans. You know, I want to know what's going to blow my mind. And then, poof, it's gone and you're done. Yeah. 
Yeah. I one time was on the airplane flying to New York and there was a couple sitting next to me. And I, I would guess that they were about late 60s, maybe 70 years old. And so I talked to them. There were a couple of retired school teachers. And I said, oh, you're going to New York. And they said, no, we're going to Kenya or South Africa is where they were going. They said, and we've never traveled outside the United States. We're school teachers. We both worked our entire careers in the public school system. And we've been saving for a trip to Africa to go on safari our entire lives. And uh -huh. we've got these pictures up in our house of like lions in the wild. And we've been looking at them for decades, anticipating this trip. And now oh, we're going man. on it, you know? And I just thought, I thought, well, first of all, I hope their trip is good. You know, I hope they don't lose their <laughs> luggage or something. You know, I really want it to go well for them. But I also thought that they got a lot of joy out of those 20 years of looking at those lions, thinking that one day they might save the money and go there. I believe that so much. Actually, one of the main, main things that take me away from materialism, if you want, from being obsessed with material things, is I sometimes prevent, actually quite often prevent myself from buying anything that is not a consumable unless I go and visit it two or three times. So I basically go and, you know, normally the first time you see something, you go like, oh my God, can you imagine if I have this, I need to buy it right now. And then the second time you go like, hmm, it's uh, green. Did you notice it was green, right? And then the third time you go and you go like, do I really love it? Is it really going to make my life better? And if you get there, then, you know, you've built that love relationship. It's not just another decision. And I think, you know, to wait 20 years, I haven't done that before, but maybe I should. Yeah, yeah. I've got some I think you're going to like. We make a, a distinction between liking and wanting. And they're two different parts of the brain. And the part of your brain that wants is like an appetite. It's like hungry for the thing. So think about like a little kid looking at a bicycle. They really want it really badly, right? They're so hungry for it. And they throw a fit or they say, please, please, please. But that's different than how much they'll like it. The amount that they'll like it is not the same as the amount that they want it. Interesting. So when you buy it for the kid, they bring it home and then they kind of adapt to it. They like it well enough but they want it more. And we do this with all sorts of stuff. I really want that job. Interesting. But will you like the job? <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah. And we don't think about it that way. It's like, yeah, that's actually so true. And liking it is what matters, right? Wanting it is, this is why probably we're never really satisfied because we want another thing and another thing and another thing because the thing we bought or got didn't really match what we like. That's interesting. That's right. We think we're going to like it about the same amount that we want it. And we typically like it slightly less than we want it. Yeah. I want to close with a chart that blew me away that you showed, again, in one of your presentations, which are a lot of fun, by the way, guys. Robert jokes and shares personal stories in almost in every one of his talks that I have seen. So really not to be missed. And the books are amazing. You should probably, uh, we haven't had a chance to talk about courage, but read them, read them. I think they will be wonderful books. I want to ask you about a chart that you once presented that talks about people who value money more than love and people who value love more than money. Remember that? So you had this clever way of saying, if you value money more than love, where on the happiness satisfaction with your life are you? And if you value love more than happiness, where do you fit? Describe this to us. It was really mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. So if you look at the two lines, I'm describing you know, a, a graph from research. It looks like an X. People who think money is really important and love is not are super unsatisfied. They're miserable. Even if they have money. It has nothing to do with whether they have the money. They just think getting money is so important, money is so important, but relationships, connection, love is not important. They end up investing in the wrong thing where their happiness is concerned because relationships are pay off bigger dividends than money does in terms of happiness. Then on the other side, if you think other people are so important, I just want to connect and help and fall in love and all of those great social things and money's relatively unimportant, you're really happy. Those people are super, super happy. Now, it's hard to be either of those. 
it's hard to think that money doesn't matter at all. And it's hard to think that people don't matter at all. So most of us are kind of like in the crossing part of the X, which is we kind of think that other people are important and we kind of think money is important. And we're sort of like just barely happy, like just a tiny, like one, <laughs> exactly. like one yeah. foot into happiness, you know? Yeah. But the truth is, I think that that kind of graph you know, points out what you'll hear from lots of happiness experts, which is if there were a single key to happiness, there isn't, but if there were one, it would be to be found in our relationships. Really, it's investing in others is is really great payoff yeah. for well-being. Which is, it's supposed to be easy, especially if you have your basic needs met, right? So, you know, it's hard to focus on, I'm going to go out and meet people that I love, or I'm going to invest time at home when you have to go out and fend for yourself if you want. But I find puzzling is how people continue to want money after they have enough to satisfy their basic needs. So how people constantly strive for, I know I, I want more. I want more because it doesn't seem that what I have is enough, even though it is. One of the people that I admire most in life, when he was like about 33, 34, he got a 10-year position at a big university and he was on his way to be the president of the university. He was really going to be a big deal. And during his year off, his sabbatical year, he just worked on an organic farm and he said, wait a minute, I'm just as happy as when I was at work, if not more so. And he calculated exactly how much he needed to live to be happy. And he said, I'm going to, from age 34 onward, live on exactly that amount adjusted for inflation. So, you know, the amount will go up a little bit as inflation goes up. And it was something really modest. He said, I know I'll never take a trip to Europe. I'll never buy a new car. I'll buy used books, not new books. But, you know, I'll be able to do the simple things that I want for my lifestyle. I'll have some bees that I can keep in the backyard. I'll have lots of books. I'll drink my coffee. I can take walks in my neighborhood. Like, that's all the stuff I want personally. And he now is almost 80 years old, and he's done it every single year exactly that since he was 34. Oh, that is an amazing journey. And he's happy with it. I mean, I'm sure he is. He seems thrilled, yeah. Yeah. Man, I have to do some thinking now. I mean, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I think all of us do. It is, it's so interesting. I mean, when you really think about it, the money is probably the thing we, you know, most people pursue most in the Western world, even though I think a lot of us know it's not the thing that makes us happier. And I agree. I think relationships and really true love really makes a massive difference. And I can't thank you enough. I really love you, man. You're amazing in every possible way. I wish I was your cat, uh, but, <laughs> I, <laughs> but at least I got the joy of spending this hour with you, Robert. It's been amazing. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, thanks so much. This was delightful. Like, I'll be replaying this hour for the rest of the day in my head. Oh my God, thank you. I can send you a recording so that you can play it once a year from now on. Perfect. <laughs> That's a Perfect. great memory. Robert, thanks a lot. I hope we meet again soon. Thank you, Mo. Take care. And yeah, I love you all for listening. Thank you for joining me today. Don't forget to follow me on social media. My handles are uh, mo underscore gaudet on Instagram, mo.gaudet.official on Facebook, and mgaudet on Twitter and mogaudet on LinkedIn. I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity that you give me to talk to such amazing people disguised as the host of a podcast, but they blow me away every time. I hope Robert gave you some nuggets of wisdom today, and I'll see you on the next episode.